It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there. And he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Zinn is being mobbed as our Louis Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. This is Our Tribe History, a regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans. Welcome to the second episode of Our Tribe History, the podcast that looks at the history of the Cleveland Indians. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Now, we left off last week's episode with Joe Jackson being traded and a new owner coming into the mix. Um... If you're an Indians fan in 1915, 1916, you're kind of uh, in limbo. You're not really sure what to expect. You just lost, you know, one of your your best players, and uh, this next season coming up just doesn't look that appealing. Even with the most optimistic fan looking at the 1916 season, it's kind of one of those. Well, we have a few pieces, but they're going to be good enough to compete with some of the other teams early in spring training, the answer is probably no. Now, if you are a fan that's flipping open their plane dealer on April 9th of 1916, you're going to be over the moon. Plastered on that front page of the sports section was the headline, Tris Speaker Comes to Cleveland. This is just absolutely huge news. Tris Speaker is one of the top tier players of that era. He gets overshadowed by Ty Cobb and Rightly so. I mean, Cobb was the best player of that era, but Speaker really wasn't that far behind. For instance, Speaker was coming off a 10-war season in 1914 and a 7.1 in 1915. When you compare that to what was on the Cleveland team, the leader in 1914 was Shoeless Joe with a 4.6, and in 1915, for position players, it was Ray Chapman. He had a 4.3. Now, the highest war player on Cleveland was actually Guy Morton in 1915, but he was a pitcher, so it's kind of moot for this point. And one of my favorite aspects of that newspaper, and if you've ever done newspaper research or any sort of historical research and you're combing through early 1900s newspapers, they're a lot of fun because there's all kinds of weird tonics that are offered as well as, you know, a hodgepodge of, of everything and one of the things they threw on that page was 
not one, not two, but three different poses uh, of speaker. He's, you know, standing there, he's swinging a bat. I think there's a picture of his head. Um, But that's the era you don't have the social media we have where it'd be a thousand pictures at your fingertips. You have three different poses of speaker to get the fans excited. And with that move, Cleveland had its star, its main attraction that was going to lead the club going forward. And just a little background on the speaker family. Triss's father was actually born in Ohio. The family didn't stay here long, though. They ended up relocating to Texas and Triss's uncles ended up fighting for the Confederacy. Now, there are some accounts that say his father was also in the Confederate Army, but he was way too young to be even remotely close to being a soldier. And Triss was born in April of 1888 in Hubbard, Texas. Now, there were always kind of rumors of maybe Triss was lying about his birth year and he was actually a little bit older than someone born in 1888, but... We're just going to roll with that because there's really no uh, winning answer. Documents from those eras sometimes could be misrepresented or maybe the census taker heard something wrong. So uh, we're going to go with 1888 as Triss's birth year. Hubbard, Texas is actually a former resort town. They used to advertise their mineral waters, um, also a cotton and lumber town. It's roughly about 72 miles away or an hour and a half south of Dallas. The uh, city reached its apex in about 1920 with 2,000 residents. Today, it's around 1,400. And as a young boy in Texas, Tris picked up a baseball bat pretty early and was out playing baseball. Now, he was also out riding horses and doing other things that perhaps Texas boys like to do when they're growing up. And one of those things was riding horses. And as the story goes, Tris was riding a Bronco of some nature and was bucked from that Bronco and broke his right arm. Now, being a natural righty, Tris loved baseball so much he had to get back with it and decided he would learn to throw lefty and strengthen his left arm so well that when his arm healed, his right arm, he decided he would hit lefty as well. So, you know, you, you think about that, and nowadays you break something, you're just going to sit and wait to rehab and maybe play video games. But for Tris, his love of baseball was so strong that he uh, decided he would throw lefty and totally change the perhaps the trajectory of his life. So Speaker becomes a, a left-hander, which... Again, looking at Speaker in the, the grand scheme of things, you try to separate that myth and legend from the actual person. But this is one of those stories that sticks with him. And you see that throughout uh, the records. It's, it's nothing that I can't imagine would be made up. It's too far-fetched almost to make something like that up because Tris would sign right-handed. I think I believe he was a, a right-handed golfer as well. So... You know, it's just one of those fanciful stories that's actually true about Speaker. And Tris played ball in high school and then went for a year to Fort Worth Polytechnic Institute, which is today's Texas Wesleyan University, where he played baseball out there. But it wasn't really long before he caught the eye of these professional semi-pro teams. Uh, A guy named Doak Roberts of Cleburne ended up picking him up and he joined the team in the North Texas League. 
where he was actually a pitcher from the get-go, and he had some minor success, but he also had a few poor outings. As the story goes, like, it was the center fielder of that team, ended up, you know, getting hurt, and they threw speaker out there, and to be cliched, the rest is history. You have an arm good enough to be a pitcher, you're going to have an arm good enough to chuck the ball in from center field, so... Tris kind of found his niche in the outfield. And after the Cleburne team, Tris joined a team in Houston, and the Red Sox took notice and ended up picking him up. His first stint with the club, he was one of those late call-ups. He had a few games here and there, batted a buck fifty-eight in just seven games, and that was his, his first taste of the big leagues. And in 1908, he had another call-up with the Red Sox. Again, nothing... Uh, too earth-shattering. He did meet someone who would become a lifelong friend and a, a future teammate in Cleveland, Smokey Joe Wood. Although he wasn't Smokey at the time, he was just Joe Wood. And the two became great friends. But again, 1908, they weren't really setting the world on fire. Now in 1909, both guys started putting it together and making a name for themselves. For Tris, he had a 309 average and 26 doubles, 13 triples. He also had 77 RBI as just a 21-year-old kid. And since this isn't a Boston Red Sox podcast, we're going to kind of glance over a lot of Speaker's career in Boston. Now, don't get me wrong. He has a heck of a career in Boston before he comes to Cleveland, and there are definitely some aspects you know we're going to highlight. But you could probably spend several episodes of a podcast just on the the life and times of Tris Speaker. But for now, we're going to just go over some of the, the the cliff note version of his time in Boston. And in 1910, Boston put together an outfield that featured Tris in center, Duffy Lewis in left, and Harry Hooper in right. They were dubbed the golden outfield. And it's amazing when you look at some of their stats. One of the things that is mentioned is they compiled a nearly 600 winning percentage over their six seasons together. And in 1910, the Sox finished 81-72, and 72, good for fourth place in the AL, but not as good as Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics. But it really wasn't long before Speaker and the Red Sox were capturing pennants. The first was in 1912. They ended up winning 105 games, finishing 14 games ahead of Washington. And in that World Series, they battled Christy Mathewson, who... Again, is one of baseball's all-time great pitchers and the Giants. And the Red Sox ended up taking that series four games to three. Um, Like many games of that era, they had to postpone one of them due to darkness. So game two actually ended in a 6-6 tie due to darkness. So it wasn't just a seven-game series, but actually an eight-game series. And that final game featured some of the most dramatic moments in baseball history. The Giants had taken the lead in extra innings, and if you know anything about that that World Series, ultimately there was a play, Snodgrass Muff, where he dropped the ball that, you know, without video, who knows exactly how routine it was, but more or less he dropped the ball that opened the door for the Red Sox to win the World Series speaker. Um, had a single to tie the game, and then future Indian Larry Gardner had a sack fly that ended it, and Boston was the world champion. 
in that series, Speaker recorded nine hits, including a double and two triples. And then in 1915, Speaker and the Red Sox captured the AL pennant again. They made short work of the, the Phillies in that series. It was a five-game series, not nearly as dramatic as the, the first uh, World Series game. But it ended up being the last meaningful game that Speaker would don a, a Red Sox uniform. And this brings us to the question of why did the Red Sox get rid of one of the greatest outfielders in the game of that era? And there's always, and that's the best part about history, is there's always different avenues you can explore. It's never just, well, usually it's never just one thing that is the cause of something. And with Speaker, it's kind of the same way. It's all these other factors that go into things, um, one of which is Speaker could be abrasive. You read, you know, some of these stories about him, and you know, there's one that's mentioned in his biographies. Um, Speaker could be a great friend. Again, he was friends with Smokey Joe and Larry Gardner, but he could also be just a pain in the butt. Uh, there's one incident that gets highlighted. His teammate, Duffy Lewis, apparently had a bad haircut, and Speaker kind of kept prodding him, knocking his hat off in front of people. And Lewis really wasn't thrilled with that and said, hey, man, can you knock that off? Uh, not literally, but uh, Speaker then, again, knocked off Lewis's hat. So Duffy decided he would retaliate by checking a bat at him. So, again, Speaker could be a, a bit abrasive. However, I think one of the the big driving forces is it always boils down to money. I, it's That's just always the uh, uh, root of everything. And you know, we like to look back at those eras with some nostalgia that, well, guys just played because they loved the game. And, um, you know, I think that argument kind of flew out the window the second that guys started getting paid in the 1860s. I mean, we all love baseball. And if someone wanted us to to play baseball and wanted to pay us for it, we would most certainly do that. We'd still love the game, but we'd also like to get paid. And if someone says, I will pay you more than the other team uh, because you're really good, then you're going to go maybe to that other team or, uh, you know, stick where you're at. Now, granted, baseball in the early 1900s, there wasn't a free agency like we have now. So you were kind of stuck to the one team until they really didn't want you anymore. And with Speaker, that can all be traced back more or less to the birth of the Federal League. Those early rough-and-tumble years of baseball, there are always leagues popping up, and the Federal League wanted to challenge the American League and the National League. And one way to do that was to take away their best players with more money. So... They were looking at some of these big name guys, and among them was Speaker. Now, the Red Sox obviously had an incentive not to lose Tris because, again, he's one of the greatest players of that era. To kind of avoid any sort of bidding war, the Red Sox really wanted to jump out ahead of any sort of offers that Tris was going to get. And there were rumors that the Brooklyn Club of the Federal League was going to offer Tris. These these crazy contracts, but the Red Sox ended up paying Tris. I think it was somewhere around eighteen thousand for the nineteen fourteen and the nineteen fifteen season. 
Now, the problem with everything is the Federal League folded in 19, after the 1915 season. So if you're the Red Sox and you've lost that competitor that was going to poach your players for these high salaries, why are you going to pay Tris Speaker 18000 when you could pay him 9000 which is what the Red Sox wanted to do? On the flip side of that coin, if you're Tris Speaker and you're making $18,000 to play baseball, you don't want to go back down to $9,000. So that's kind of where the rub lie. And Tris was willing to work with the Red Sox, but the majority owner, Joseph Lannon, really wasn't interested in paying Tris all that money. So when Tris held out for a new contract, he wouldn't sign what the Red Sox had offered him. They kind of worked out an agreement where Tris would show up to spring training and they would work something out, which, again, not the best situation in hindsight. But, you know, it got to a point, actually, though, by the end of spring training, they had just played their last exhibition game that Tris thought they had things hammered out. They thought they were going to go back after the game you know, sign that contract and get ready for that 1916 season, but it just didn't work out. And this is where it gets fun when you're doing research on a player, you're learning about something. These ins and outs of why things happened, I think, are um, always great to learn and, and it's a lot of fun to, you know, read these differing accounts. Um, but among that is a uh, Ed Bang, who was an influential and recognized sports writer for the Cleveland News, uh, after Tris had died, Ed had printed this in, not necessarily the obituary, but one of those remembrance stories. But he mentioned that, I was one of the most ardent admirers and supporters and take credit for the Cleveland Indians acquiring title to him when the late James C. Dunn bought the club in 1916. I was watching the Associated Press Wire late one afternoon when I noticed a flash from Boston to the effect owner Lannon would not accede to speaker's demands for an increase in salary and would put him on the bidding block. I phoned Robert McRoy, business manager of the club, and told him to hustle and make a train for Boston. So it's one of those stories where the there's always the truth and then there's both sides of the truth and where that middle ground is did Ed Bang really send this note out or, you know, not to say he was, you know, fabricating or anything. It's just one of those, those things that obviously these gentlemen aren't around anymore. You can't really question them of what really happened, but uh, takes credit for this and the wheels were set in motion. And like any soap opera or any high dramatic event, uh, Tris was hearing one thing from the Sox ownership behind these closed doors while another thing was happening and these wheels were in motion to get Speaker out of Boston. And as I mentioned, after that final exhibition game, Speaker goes to his hotel room. And again, you couldn't script a more dramatic or more made for TV or a movie movie. Uh, maybe a Speaker biopic would be wonderful because it has all these highs and lows. But Speaker goes to his hotel room and he gets a call from uh, Robert McRoy asking to talk. So Speaker talks with McRoy and McRoy then breaks the news to Speaker that, hey, man, um, 
you're coming to Cleveland. And Tris was not happy. <laughs> it was uh, something he really wasn't expecting. I mean, you're gearing up to ship off to Boston and you get a call from Cleveland saying, well, we traded for you and you're headed to the Forest City. It's going to rankle some feathers when uh, you think that you're going back to where you've played your your last half dozen seasons. And when the dust settled, the trade that happened was speaker to the Indians and Cleveland sent around 55000 along with Sad Sam Jones and Fred Thomas. Uh, you may ask why his name was Sad Sam Jones. Was he actually sad? Uh, he said it's because he wore his hat down low, so he looked sad, and that was just a name that was given to him. But nevertheless, the plane dealer did mention that uh, Wambi was also part of that deal instead of Thomas, but uh, again, it shook down just to be Fred Thomas. Jones went on to have a pretty lengthy career playing 22 seasons in the league. He had six with Boston, five with New York, and then played a few with Washington and Chicago along with a year in St. Louis. Thomas just kind of floated around the parts of three seasons with Boston, Philly, and Washington, but never really amounted to much. So, he, you know, you're in Boston. You let go of one of the greatest outfielders of that era for good amount of cash, but two players that were not even on the same tier as Tris Speaker. Again, at first, Speaker was actually very noncommittal about going to Cleveland. He was under the impression that he was going to stay in, in Boston, and then all of a sudden he's going to Cleveland. And the big hang-up was the money that was being spent to Boston. Trisk wanted a slice of that you know, 50-55K that was being sent to Boston, um, and he didn't want Cleveland to pay it to him. He wanted Boston, and, and Lannon said, I'm not going to pay you that some of that money. So there was a big hang-up in, uh, in that avenue. But, again, Cooler had started to prevail, and he ended up going to Cleveland. McRoy himself was ecstatic about this. He wrote, It was a pleasure to figure in a deal to bring this greatest of players to my new hometown, and all credit is due to Jim Dunn, who made it possible. And Speaker arrives in Cleveland literally a, a few days before opening day. Uh, the papers mention him. Again, April 9th, the tribe was set to take the field on April 12th. And again, according to the plane dealer, Speaker arrived actually on the 11th and immediately went to the Holiday Hotel where he met reporters. And if you're into Cleveland history, Google the Holiday Hotel, just an absolutely stunning hotel that was uh, a part of Cleveland's landscape. And I believe it was in there that Nap Lajoy actually had a cigar store. But that's a, uh, a story for another day. But when Speaker met with the reporters, he had a quote, I always did bat well at League Park, and I hope to continue to do so. Uh, the plane dealer did the fact-checking on that and figured out Speaker hit 380 at League Park. So maybe things were going to be great for Tris. And when you think about the configuration of League Park, you have that high wall out in right field, Tris being a left-hander, you could hit the ball and it would hit that wall and like the the girders or the, the post in there would create some interesting ricochets. So if you throw a 
outfielder out there, right fielder, and the ball hit off there and he wasn't aware of how things worked, then things could get interesting. And as the story goes, Speaker's contract went until the the last hour and then they, they settled things. I'm not sure it was ever really established who paid Speaker that money he was looking for, but it get, did give him enough time to suit up for opening day. So it was a new era in Cleveland that started the 1916 season. Fans were ecstatic that they had a superstar back on the club. And about 18,000 fans made their way to League Park. They were playing the St. Louis Browns. And President Dunn of the team had ordered a, a festive atmosphere, as the paper would say. There was a big band, strong-voiced singers, men and women, have been engaged to keep the crowd in good humor prior to the game and between innings. And Speaker was literally running onto the field to meet his new teammates for that first time because, again, his contract was literally signed and uh, figured out hours before the game started. And Speaker was joining a team that was managed by Leafle and included a catcher in Steve O'Neill with Wambi, Terry Turner, outfielder Jack Graney, Ray Chapman, Elmer Smith, uh, spitballer Stan Kovaleski, and Jim Bagby. But the starter of that game was a gentleman named Willie Mitchell. And this was his third consecutive opening day start. And actually his fourth in fifth years. Uh, again, when you think of opening day starters, you think of you know memorable names like Bob Feller. And uh, you know recently, Corey Kluber had started so many of our opening games. Uh, CC in the past, you know, Nagy, Martinez, uh, a lot of these, these great pitchers in our history. But you don't really think of Willie Mitchell. And Willie Mitchell actually was one of those pieces of trivia. He was the opposing pitcher during Babe Ruth's first start in Boston. So that's one of those, you know, little weird uh, tidbits of Willie Mitchell's career. And actually, Joe Jackson was on record as saying that Willie Mitchell was one of the hardest pitchers he ever had to go up against. So it's always interesting to hear the stories of these great hitters that always found these guys that you wouldn't think of as uh, difficult pitchers being difficult and challenging them for a, again, a guy like Sheilas Joe who could hit 400. So speaker takes his spot out in center field. And if you're a hardcore baseball fanatic, you might be aware that speaker played a, a very shallow center field. He turned about a half dozen unassisted double plays playing center field, which when you think about it, that's got to be a, a pretty short center field if you're going to turn a, an unassisted double play. And these Cleveland fans were still a bit shocked to see how shallow he was. The plane dealer mentioned that the fans in the left field bleachers were a little bummed out that they actually couldn't talk to the speaker during the game. And, you know, you read stories of baseball, early 20th century, mid 20th century, where you could still have conversations with players in between innings or during the game. But speaker was so shallow and League Park, such a big outfield that you couldn't speak to uh, Spoke as his teammates often called him. And for all that excitement and the hubbub of speaker's first game, it really didn't materialize to much. Uh, the tribe really didn't give the Browns much of a game. Speaker had a walk in his first at bat, but you know, a starter, William Mitchell, was roughed up in five innings, surrendering four runs and four walks. 
Jim Bagby actually got his Indians debut that game, and we'll hear his name later on in the podcast. But among the interesting aspects of that game, umpiring was Billy Evans, who is a, a Hall of Fame umpire, Mayor Davis throughout the first pitch. And during the game, there was actually a dog delay. A, a stray dog had ran on the field, and Larry, who was the team's uh, quote-unquote mascot for uh, this era of Indians baseball, and again, we'll dive into Larry a little more maybe in the next podcast, uh, who was Jack Greeny's dog, ended up chasing this dog away, and it was so notable that it got in the paper, but he really didn't want anyone encroaching on his territory. And the Tribe came out on the short end of that game, but with Speaker, the future was bright. Now, granted, when you have a superstar on the team, there's a lot of expectations, a lot of high hopes, and the newspaper really focused in on Speaker. So when you comb through the newspaper archive of 1916, you'll see uh, Speaker's name in a lot of the headlines, for better or for worse. For example, on April 19th, there was a headline, Hits over Tris Speaker, Turn Tide Against Indians. Vit and Veach take advantage of Foles' 55,000 beauty and incidentally pave the way for another Tiger victory. So ribbon on the fact that Tris was playing so shallow, maybe he should play deeper so these balls don't get knocked over his head. Now, when you listen to other players of that era speak about Tris Speaker, they mentioned he just had this uncanny ability to judge a ball, and when it was going to be over his head, he could just turn his head and bolt to deep center and still make the catch. But why take a you know a, a chance not to to create some drama, I suppose, and and knock the star player? There were also some very interesting highlights to this season. On May nineteenth, the club actually visited President Woodrow Wilson when they were out in Washington. And I believe the only player that didn't make the visit was Jack Graney. And there was some small uh, tongue-in-cheek joke about diplomatic issues with Graney being a Canadian. But still pretty neat uh, that the players were visiting the president while out there. And then you know, June 15th, Tris had a, a walk-off single, the gl- hit a nice line drive through Wally Pipp's glove at first base against the Yankees. And one of my favorite stories, I always love when we're the innovators or the first team to do something or another, was when we were the first team to wear uniform numbers. On June 25th, 1916, players went out to the field and they had their their uniforms on, but sewn on the sleeve was the uniform number. And this was a historic event. No other team in the major leagues had worn uniform numbers. And the plane dealer of of that time mentioned an innovation was sprung by the management when the Indians appeared with numbers upon their sleeves, such as are worn by the drivers of racehorses. It was the carrying out of an idea by vice president, Robert McRoy and will it is expected be adopted by the league. Graney, for instance, is number one, Turner, number two speaker, number three, and so on. And in that magical 2016 year, uh, we were able to have a replica jersey made. Um, and actually, I picked number three because, again, I'm a big Trish Speaker fan. I think his story is just fascinating. So we had a replica made, and I put it out in the corner bar. We have these two display cases, and I'm going to toot my own horn here. Uh, we try to rotate stuff in and out that makes sense. We had 
those baseballs that Bauer made at one point hanging out there. And when we did a Hall of Fame induction, we'll put certain things out there. And right now, hopefully, we'll get baseball rolling soon. I have a Robo's jersey from his gold glove season and the first time we wore red since the 70s. So we try to get the historic stuff rotated in. So when you're having a beer out in the corner bar or if you're just taking the lap around the ballpark, you can get kind of up close and see these these artifacts of Indians history. But nevertheless, in 2016, we had that jersey out there as a, a marker of the 100-year anniversary of the Cleveland Indians becoming the first team to wear uniform numbers in a game. And this news made its way across the country. Newspapers from St. Louis to Chicago to New York all covered this new development. One paper actually noted the Indians wore numbers on the sleeves of their baseball blouses, which tallied with those opposite their names on the scorecard. This innovation made a big hit. This is the first time in the history of baseball that the idea was tried out. Now, it's funny because the St. Louis newspaper wasn't nearly as, as excited, seeing as they, they saw the move as more of a stunt. And they said, the present system merely forces the fan to pay money for information that should be gladly given to him. So they thought it was more of a, uh, a ploy to buy scorecards. Nevertheless, you might think that this would catch on, but for whatever reason, it just didn't. Now, there's no uh, explanation as to why it went away. It just kind of faded, and there's really no more mention of it. There aren't actually any of these uniforms that still exist, maybe somewhere in a dusty attic. I don't know. They, they ended up using them. Like I said, you'll see photos from spring training the next year with players wearing the uniforms. But it would be neat if you could find an actual one from that era that did exist. I'm sure the value would be you know, off the charts, but nevertheless, great to see. And as the season wore on, Speaker continued to make headlines with his fielding and his hitting, um, but the club kind of faded. So they started off the season really great. They shot up the first place in early May and held that down for a while, had a few minor hiccups, but more or less, they just couldn't keep it going. Uh, they finished September and October with a 10 and 17 record to kind of fizzle with a 77 77 for the season, which was good enough for sixth place. And again, with speaker on the club, there was excitement for the future. You had a, a bona fide star to take the, the place of where Lajaway and Shoeless Joe once stood, but you know, 16 just wasn't in the cards for them. But Speaker did play like a man whose hair was on fire. I mean, he ended up winning the the batting title that year. He broke Ty Cobb's uh, nine consecutive years of winning the batting championship streak. And uh, Speaker finished with a 386 to Cobb's 370. Now, the next three seasons after that, Cobb was back on top. But for that one brief period, Speaker was king. And rounding out that 1916 season, Speaker led the AL in offensive war on base percentage, slugging percentage, on base plus slugging, hits, and he actually tied his teammate Jack Graney in doubles. And um, as we'll see, Speaker's forte was doubles. He had the major league record for most doubles in a career, uh, a record that will most likely never be touched by another player. And with that, Cleveland baseball fans had a lot to be excited for, 
for the 1917 and 1918 and 1919 and so on and so forth seasons. They had their star. They had a great core of of players who we'll look at in the next podcast. Um, But also in the distant horizon was the looming World War I and what that was going to do to baseball and what that was going to do to the Cleveland Indians. But that is on our next podcast. So uh, please join us next time when we talk about the 1917-1918 Cleveland Indians. You've been listening to Our Tribe History with Indians team historian Jeremy Fedor. 